Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We're going to, through the Christmas de- through Christmas Day, still be wrapping up glory and redemption. And remember, last week we lit the first candle of Advent, the hope candle, to remind us that all throughout the Old Testament, from the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, that God has given us hope for redemption. And that hope for redemption ultimately reveals to be Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, who came to us about 2,000 years ago. Years ago, and, and God had promised this hope for, for generations and, and told us that this, this hope, this man, he would defeat sin and evil. He would descend from Abraham. He would be a prophet like Moses, a, a priest greater than Eli, a king greater than David. And we see these, these prophecies, these promises coming true in the person of Jesus Christ. This promise that Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is to come, this hope that he would defeat sin and evil as promised in Genesis 3.15. Galatians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 tells us this, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. You see, Jesus came, he defeated sin and evil, and is here to rescue all who would believe on him as Lord and Savior. Not only that, we were told in all of the prophecies that he would be a descendant of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel tells us that Jesus uh, was from Abraham. In fact, verse 1, it says, an account of the genealogy or the historical background, the lineage of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. We see this hope that has come. He is fulfilling the promises that have been made. And so this this next one that we're looking at, the fact that he would be a prophet like Moses. Well, we want to understand what scripture means. And did Jesus fulfill this promise that he would be a prophet like Moses? So first we have to look at prophets. We have to understand what a prophet is. And, and in the Old Testament, prophecy tends to reveal just bits and pieces of God's greater plan. And we can see this in the verses that we've looked at regarding the man who was to come. That, that each of these verses, each of these segments, gives a little piece of the puzzle. Uh, and each prophecy tells just a little bit of the story of this man who is to come, this Messiah who is promised. And Old Testament prophets, when we look at them as individuals, they only received bits and pieces of the story that God was telling. They only received bits and pieces of the promises of redemption. And and so we see all throughout the history of the Old Testament that each of the prophets reveal only part of God's plan of glory and redemption. And we look at Moses and we see that, that this first and this great prophet that uh, we're promised the, the, the man of hope will be a, a prophet greater than him. Well, we see that, that Moses doesn't get the whole story. He really just gets revealed to him the exodus and what God wants 
for his people in Exodus and the law of God. Samuel is kind of overseeing the formulation of the kingdom of God as a prophet. Elijah and Elisha, they're calling out the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jeremiah is calling out the sin of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so each of these prophets is only having revealed to them portions of the story, portions of the promise, portions of the redemptive plan of God. Jonah, if most of you are familiar with Jonah, we kind of skipped over Jonah. But Jonah, his whole job was to reveal the sin of a foreign nation and Gentiles in Nineveh. Daniel, he is revealed to him the end times and the picture of Jesus' second coming. Isaiah sees the picture of Jesus in his first coming, the suffering servant, the promise of the virgin birth. And so we see each of these prophets only has revealed to them a small little piece of the puzzle of God's plan for redemption. A little, a little bit by bit that, that there is no prophet who understands all that God longs to do. Because, but first of all, you've got to imagine that uh, if God just kind of did an information dump into your head right now so that you would understand everything, your brain would turn to an even greater bit of jelly than it is now. I mean, it would just be like... Your head would explode if God revealed all of his plan to you in any given moment. But we see over the ages that God revealed his plan for redemption bit by bit through different prophets. And so we wonder, what does a prophet who is greater than Moses look like? Well, first we have to remember that prophets, that that they had strict standards. That, That a prophet, when they claimed to speak for God... First of all, we had to understand that they were called. When we look at Jeremiah and Amos and Isaiah, we see three different men at three different stages in life who recognize that God had established them to speak through them. Jeremiah said that it was from his his mother's womb that he had been set apart as a prophet. Most of us remember Isaiah chapter 6. It was Isaiah, he has a vision of walking into the temple and seeing the very presence of God and and just freaking out because he's a sinful man and wonders, how can I even be in God's presence? And the angel comes to him and touches a coal to his lips and cleanses him and calls him to speak on God's behalf. So Jeremiah says, it was from birth. And Isaiah says, it was from this moment where I had this vision that I was called. And so a prophet of God had to be set apart, had to be uniquely called to speak on God's behalf. And then they had to speak proven truth. In other words, someone who says they are a prophet must speak things that come to pass and are true. Here's what God's word says. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22, a prophet who is genuinely of God, the prophet who presumes to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, That is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Now I'm going to follow just a tiny bit of a rabbit trail. uh, and, And speak to our modern times here for just a moment. When we see the strict standards that God has for someone who claims to speak for him and in his name. We should be uh, cautious of who we listen to 
when they say they're speaking on God's behalf. We should be judging what they say against what God has already revealed to us in his word. And then we should also determine whether or not it's truthful. And I will say, uh, that many of you might remember that there, there, there were a number of religious leaders in our country who promised us that a certain person would be president. And, you know, we won't need to speak names because he's not. And it was a 50-50 shot, right? So you get what they said. He will be. It's a promise God told me. Do you know it can't be that God told them? Why is that? Because he's not president. Right? That there are people who will say, God told me to tell you to speak on his behalf. If it doesn't come true, according to the Old Testament, what should be the consequence? Death. Now, we live in an era of grace, and so we don't, we don't really walk in the death penalty for prophets quite so much. In fact, we, we you know, are supposed to be working to restore people and redeem people who are in error. But... If in the Old Testament, God's standard was death, shouldn't we be at least a little bit more cautious regarding people who claim to speak for the Lord in our day and age? And so I want to, be, I want to encourage you to be careful. When someone says they are a prophet, when someone says they speak for God, that if it does not come to pass, if they do not speak truth that lines up with the revealed scriptures, then you should discount them and pray for them. And no longer buy their books or watch their television shows or listen to their podcasts. But instead, find teachers and prophets who speak truth that comes to pass. So God has strict standards for prophets. They must speak his word and it must come to pass. If it does not, they are false prophets and they deserve condemnation. The next standard that God has for his prophets is that they don't contradict one another or his word. Isaiah 8.20, it says this, Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. In this passage, God is telling Isaiah and telling his people, You seek signs, you seek direction you seek prophecy but what i want you to do is i want you to go only to god's people only to the men who i have given to you and then i also want you to pay attention and if their prophecy contradicts what my word says you should not listen to them he says there will be no dawn for them what do you think he's implying yeah death for false prophets if a pro person gives a prophecy that does not line up and coincide with God's word, they are not a prophet. And then lastly, what we have here, they are supposed to only speak what God says. Second Chronicles 18, 13, here is uh, the, the, the testimony of a, a, a very small prophet in the, the course of the story of Micaiah. And he says, as the Lord lives, I will say whatever my God says. In other words, he's making a pledge that he will only speak the words of God, but he will also always speak the words of God and not hold back. And so we see that prophets are given these standards and we're supposed to measure a prophet as to whether or not they are valid by whether or not they live up to the standards that God has given. And so we, we can look and see that, that this is a pretty high calling and this is a pretty big deal. And yet, in the Old Testament, in, in the promises that God made, each and every prophet only got to see little bits and pieces of the greater picture. 
And so we, we, we understand that God revealed himself through the prophets and through prophecy for hundreds of years, but only partially and incompletely through any individual prophet or prophecy. In other words, we can look and if you were a prophet, God might have given you a puzzle piece of the big picture, but no prophet ever received the whole big picture and all of the details. It was always limited in scope. It was always just a piece of the puzzle. And so we can understand, how could a prophet be greater than all the older prophets in the Old Testament? How could this one who is to come be greater than all of these other great men who've heard from God and spoken his word? And here's what scripture tells us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and the very beginning of uh, verse 2. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, I, I want you to get this. I want you to wrap your head around this, that we have the hope of what is to come because of the prophecies that have been given to us. But now what we see is that God in his love for us, God in his deep desire to bring us back to himself and redeem us has chosen to no longer speak in bits and pieces through prophets through hundreds of years but instead he has chosen to speak directly to us through his son jesus christ and so prophecy now is not some bits and pieces let's put the puzzle together and you know take the put everything on the board and the strings and the conspiracy theory and figure it all out. But now God has sent one person to speak it all to us with clarity. One person to give us the whole picture. In fact, it's not just a person, it's his son. And in his son, we see that God himself is essentially now the prophet. He has come himself in the person of his son, the second person of the Trinity. And, and if you're struggling as a Christian, you go, I don't understand the Trinity. Good. I mean, it, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, co-eternal, co-equal. They're all one God. How does that work? I don't know. But it does, and that's what Scripture teaches us. Now, there are some theories and some things we could talk about one-on-one -on -one to try and help us understand but, but if you say, I'm confused, how is it that Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God? Good, be a little confused. If you could understand the omnipotent, eternal, greater than you creator of the world, he would be just like Bob down the street. And why would you want Bob to be God? Right? Does that make sense? But here we have God in his love for us. He is no longer speaking in bits and pieces, but he's giving us the full picture by himself coming and giving us the truth. He is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son of the living God, he has come to reveal to us now not just bits and pieces of the story, but the whole story. Here's what God's word says about this. John chapter 1 verses 14 and 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Earlier in his gospel, in verse 1 of chapter 1, John has said, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with, 
The Word was with God and the Word was God. That The Word and God are synonymous. They are, they are the same. That Jesus, the Logos, the Word, is the same as the Father and yet unique and separate. And so the Word becomes flesh, becomes a, the prophet to dwell among us, to reveal to us the fullness of the Father. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has revealed him. Shouldn't that be exciting? We've been getting little snippets, little bits and pieces of the puzzle and seeing God and his love for us and his plan for redemption over the course of a hundred years. It's, it's kind of unfolding, but we don't understand the details. And then all of a sudden, God himself in the person of his son shows up and reveals everything to us. No longer are there any questions, no longer is there any doubt, but the whole plan of redemption is now dropped in our laps, not by some prophet like us, but by God himself putting on flesh and walking among us. And so we have this beautiful picture of the love of God, him being willing in the person of Jesus Christ to give up all the rights and privileges of heaven and to come and walk amongst the muck and the mire of this world to show us the full picture, to reveal to us the love that he has for us. We can look in other places later in the Gospel of John. John 14, verses 8 through 11. Jesus is conversing with his disciples. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. Doesn't that sound a little bit like another prophet we just heard about, Micaiah? That, that the words that I speak are not just my words, they're the words of God. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, if, you, if you're struggling with that concept, simply believe because of the works that I'm doing. Look at me and believe that I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, because of all the things you see me accomplishing. If you're struggling with the deeper truths of doctrine, it's okay. Simply believe because of what you've seen me do in your life and the life of those around you. John, again, recording the words of Jesus, says this, The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. When we look at a prophet greater than Moses, Moses was simply a man given a word from God to share with the people of God. But now, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, has put on flesh, has revealed himself to us, is speaking the words of the Father, is giving us the whole picture of redemption, is telling us, here was the plan all along. If you would just believe on me, if you would just receive me as your Lord and Savior. John 17, verses, 16, or verses 6 through 8, Jesus says this, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. This is part of his prayer to the Father. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you, they have believed that you sent me. You see that, that Jesus was, was so clear 
as he taught, as he prayed, as he led. He was not just some other man who came with another word from God, but he was the man who had been promised all throughout the Old Testament, who was also the Son of God, sent by God himself to finish the story, to finish the plan of redemption and glory. He was the final prophet, the the best prophet, because he wasn't just some other guy with a word. He was God in the flesh, revealing the finality or the final word on what it means to be redeemed. Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, as Peter is preaching, he says this, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you. He's speaking of Jesus here and saying that, remember how Moses promised there would be a greater prophet. This Jesus, he is that prophet. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. In other words, Peter says to the Jewish people and the people he's preaching to that day, Jesus is the one that has always been promised. He is the great prophet. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy we've ever read. Trust in Jesus. Why is the Old Testament so important? It's it's when we get to days and weeks and months like this where we're celebrating the coming of Jesus. When we understand this wasn't just some last minute idea where God was up in heaven and went, oh, I got to save all these people. What am I going to do? And Jesus like, oh, I got an idea. I'll go down and we can save them. No, it was always from the very beginning, from the moment mankind fell, God had a plan for our redemption. And he revealed it slowly, bit by bit through the Old Testament. And Jesus, he's the culmination of all of that. He's the final word. He's the final prophet. He's God himself come to reveal to us the end of the story of redemption. In case you were wondering, well, maybe Jesus was just a good guy and God, you know, used him in a special way. No, you need to hear this. Colossians 2.9 says this, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. In other words, Jesus did not just have a little bit of God. He was not just sort of God. He was not a little bit less than God, created by God as a special messenger. No, Jesus is God incarnate come to reveal to us the final word of redemption. And that final word of redemption, we got to hear it, we got to listen to it, is that all who would believe might be saved, but all who stand in unbelief are condemned already. John 3, 16 through 18. And that is the final prophecy. That is the final word of redemption. That is the big picture so we say, well, why did the Father send the Son? Why did, why did God choose to, for this final prophet, not just to be some special guy with nice hair and a TV show, but instead for the final prophet to be the second person of the Trinity, the Son? Here's why God the Father sent God the Son. John three sixteen and 17. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, So that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. What one word explains why God sent Jesus? Love. Love. Today, on this second Sunday of Advent, we light the candle 
that reminds us that Jesus, in His first coming and in His second coming, is the ultimate expression of the love of God. Why would we say that Jesus is the ultimate expression of the love of God? I I, want to just help you to think about this a little bit. Is, Is if someone says, I love you, and there's something special going on in your life, and they send a card. That's nice, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's, it's cool. I got a card, maybe five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. Uh, you know, happy birthday. Here you go. Here's a card. Special day in your life. Graduation. Hooray. Here's a card. Isn't it nice if maybe they post something on Facebook or another social media, maybe even make a video. We went to Will's graduation from Rosedale uh, earlier this year, and they had ever, uh, like everybody and their cousin send videos in, and there were like 30 minutes of videos of people saying, congratulations, you graduated. And it was so terrible. But I mean, it was special for the people who graduated. And it's, it's not, and, and you know, I think you guys know people who sent them in, but who knew there would be a, you know, like 30 minutes of them? Oh, anyway, and some of them were blurry. And hold your camera sideways so it fills the screen, not portrait. Anyway, um, but so you, you see, that that's, that that's like even more loving than just a card to send a video. But what's the, what's the best way to show you love somebody? Show up, right? I mean, if you come in person, how special is that? Especially if you come from a long ways away. Shelly and I have gone to, to weddings for old youth that, well, the youth that had been in our youth group, right? Ages ago, we're old now. Wow, we have students who are like in their late 30s that we, we did in youth group. It's like, how is that even possible? Anyway, we have shown up for weddings. We've driven 25, 30 hours to go to somebody's wedding. We drive because I don't like to fly. But, but how, do you, how, do, how do they know we love them? Because we show up. How do we know that we love them more than everybody else in the room? Because we drove the furthest. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean that, you go to a convention. All right, well, let's see who drove the furthest to see how, how much you, you, know, you love the speaker. You get the picture, right? You guys get this, that, that God loved you so much that he, first of all, promised that you would be redeemed for hundreds of years, said, there's a plan, I'm going to save you. And then he didn't just send a card. He didn't just send a video. He came himself. He came himself. He loves you so much. He drove, flew, appeared, I don't know, came through the the great distance from heaven to here in order to say, I love you, and I'm here for you, and I want to save you. He loves you that much. How awesome is it? In fact, we can look at Jesus Christ We can look at his birth and we can say that God's greatest act of love toward us was to show himself fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Does that click for you? I mean, God didn't just say, here you can see a little bit. He didn't say, here's another puzzle piece. He said, here I am and I'm here for you. I love you so much. I'm coming myself. How awesome is this how beautiful is this so the question becomes for us is how should we respond to this amazing love that's revealed to us in the coming of jesus christ 
How should we respond? Now, if, if we're like a teenager getting a Christmas card or somebody shows like, hey, cool, nice, thanks. You know, but no, that's, he, he's asking for a little bit more from us. We, we see it in John three sixteen. For God loved the world in this way. He loved you. He sent Jesus. And what does he want you to do in response to that love? Believe. To believe. The first response that any of us should have to this amazing love of God is to understand that Jesus came for you because he loves you. He revealed himself completely, not little bits, not little puzzle pieces, but completely and fully for your sake. And the first response to that love should be and must be to believe on him as your Lord and Savior. To receive his sacrifice on the cross for your sins. To believe that he loves you and will welcome you into the kingdom if you simply trust in him and make him the king of your life. That is our first and most important response to the love of God in Christ Jesus. This this love that we're reminded of in Advent is to simply believe that we might be saved. And once we believe and experience salvation, here's what Jesus says is the next step. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Oh, wait, this gets a little more involved, doesn't it? This this is starting to meddle. We're moving from just a happy story about redemption now to, oh, you mean there's more? Yeah, there is. God loved you so much. He came himself to redeem you, to save you. To rescue you from the the bondage of sin. And he asks in return that you would submit your life to his leadership. How How do we really know that you love him in return for the love that he's blessed you with? When we obey. When we walk according to the commands he's given to us. And now we might go, well, so Jesus just said, love God and love your neighbors yourself. I can do that. Except we must understand that those two, (coughs) excuse me, those two are actually a summation of the ten and the hundreds underneath the ten. And so when we talk about loving God and obeying his commandments, it is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You want to know how to do that? Obey the ten commandments. You want to know how to obey the ten commandments? Follow the commandments underneath the ten commandments. That's what it means to obey the commands of God. And so it isn't some, some sitting back and lovey-dovey and, oh, let's be good people together. But it is really, listen to what he has commanded us. That is his heart. And to, to, to seek to obey that because of our love for him. And so the first thing we should do in response to love is believe. The second we should, thing we should do is obey. Is to simply obey what he has clearly spoken. The next thing that is so difficult for us as Christians to understand is that as we believe and as we obey, there will come times where we will have to be corrected in our life. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 says this, And, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons and daughters. 
For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now I realize this is taking a little bit of a a weird course, but you must understand that the love of God poured into your life is not just sunshine and roses, but sometimes God shows his deep love for you by disciplining you through suffering. God shows his deep love for you by allowing you to suffer the consequences of a sinful choice. And part of loving God in return is joyfully even receiving that discipline and responding to it. Instead of sitting back and going, God, why would you do this to me? We say, God, help me to learn what I need to learn from this and be a better believer as I come out the other side. That we must in light of his love for us, be willing to receive correction and discipline. And then the Apostle Paul, he writes this in 2 Corinthians verses four, or chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And some of us, <clears throat> we've heard this phrase, but we don't know what it's about necessarily. We think it's like something about casting out demons. or No, for the love of Christ compels us. And what does the love of Christ compel us to do as believers? Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who raised them, or excuse me, who died for them and was raised. What is it that the love of Christ compels us to do? To no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him. When we see the love of God represented in the advent, in the manger, in the cross, our response shouldn't be, that's so nice, thanks God. But instead our response should be one of, my whole life in response to the love that you poured out for me is to live for you and glorify you. That should be amongst the final ways that we respond. After believing and obeying and receiving discipline that ultimately we understand Our whole life is supposed to be lived for Christ. That does not mean you have to go be a missionary in outer wherever. But what it means is is that when you go to work, you live for Christ. When you go to play, you live for Christ. When you're at home sitting on the couch, you try and figure out, what would Jesus watch on Netflix and should I or should I not? Right? That, That everything is about living for Christ. And it doesn't mean you have to jump through hoops and be religious. What it means is is that in everything that you do, you do it for the glory of God and the love that has been revealed to you through Christ Jesus. So as, as we wrap up this morning, as we conclude with the sermon, remember that the greatest act of love that God has shown towards you is to fully reveal himself in the person and work of Christ. And so this Christmas season, this Advent, as you look at the manger, as you look at the tree, as you look at all these beautiful reminders of God's glory and his love for us, that you would not just go, oh, that makes me feel good, but you understand that that it is God himself revealing all of himself to you because he loves you and wants to walk in relationship to you. And the hope is that you will respond, first, by believing on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Second, by walking in obedience to what he has commanded you. Third, by receiving discipline from God as a loving father that you might mature and grow. And finally, 
to reorient your life to a place where you understand all of it is to be lived for Christ, not just the Sundays and the Thursday nights or the Bible study times or the prayer meetings, but all of your life is to be lived in light of the coming hope and love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this, uh, this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that as we are, are in this Advent season that we celebrate the hope that you've given us in Christ Jesus, that we can be made whole, that our sins can be forgiven, that redemption is possible for all of us. We thank you so much for the love that you've revealed to us in your son Christ. We, we thank you that you loved us enough to reveal your fullness to us, to no longer hold back, but to give us the final word of redemption, the final line of the story, which is all who believe on your son Jesus as their Lord and Savior will be saved. We thank you that this hope and this love gives us a new outlook on life. Help us to respond in belief. Help us to, to be people who obey your word. Help us to receive correction and discipline from you with joy, to realize you're seeking to grow us up and make us more mature and Christ-like. And above all else, after we have chosen to walk with you, after we've received your Son as our Savior, help us to realize, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that our whole life is to be lived for you. Lived in worship, lived in rejoicing, lived in enjoying what you've blessed us with. May it all be to your glory. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this Advent season. May we remember all that you've done for us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together our last song. Light the frost on the rose. Winter comes for a song. Oh, how nature acquaints us with the nature of patience. Like a seed in the snow, I've been buried to grow. For your promises, loyal, from sea to sequoia. And I know, though the winter's long, even richer, the harvest of Britain's, though my waiting prolongs even greater, your promise for me like a seed, I believe that my season will come. Lord, I think of your love Like the low in the sun And as I gaze, I am blinded In the light of your brightness Like a fire to the stone I'm renewed in the ice of his wild soul till the barren is muted 
Amen. May you all just have a, a, a blessed week enjoying the hope and the love to us that come to us through Christ Jesus this Advent season. And I just want to encourage you uh, to go ahead and if you haven't already, sign up for the uh, prayer list. And so I'm going to put that back up there. A QR code, and uh, you can scan it with your phone, and you'll get an email here later today just welcoming you and, and initiating that first prayer request. So I encourage you all to, to join in this, this holiday season and, and begin to uh, join us in this community of praying for our church and setting the stage for the coming years and months and decades as we work and grow together. May God bless you. Please don't forget to grab your directions if you need them to our house for this coming Saturday. And then men, look forward to seeing all of you who will to join us for Saturday, uh, the men's breakfast. So God bless you all. Have a great second week of Advent, and may you just enjoy the presence of God as you celebrate the coming of